Uh, folks, as David's already said, we come this evening to the end of uh, a series of studies in the book of Jeremiah. Um, we haven't covered every verse or even every chapter of the book, but uh, we have tried uh, to get the, the thread of Jeremiah and to hear it and understand it as God's word for us. Uh, I have to say, when David was saying we finished John's gospel this morning and Jeremiah this evening, there is some, somewhat of a sense of relief. Uh, Jeremiah is probably one of the hardest things uh, that uh, we've ever tried to preach uh, together as a team here. Um, it's pretty long. I think it's this, I think other than the Psalms, it's the longest book in the Bible. So keep that up your sleeve for a table quiz in, in the future. Um, but I'm going to try and approach it this evening. We're going to look at chapter 52. Uh, we have chosen the chapter we we want to honor the end of the biblical story and then we want to zoom out a little bit and see what the the book as a whole uh, might have to say to us as God's people here and now so maybe you pray with me Um, we always need God's help with God's word but sometimes we sense it more than others Uh, so so let's let's pray father God we thank you for your written revelation uh, that you left us a record of your gracious and kind, uh, your powerful and true dealings with your people. Uh, We thank you for all that we learn there about who you are and who we are. And Lord, we pray this evening that you'd come and you'd shed more light. Uh, You'd reveal yourself to us in fresh ways as we gather around your ancient written word. Make it alive and new for us this evening, we pray. Amen. As I say, I wanted to try and capture uh, maybe some sort of an overview of the book of Jeremiah. And in the end, I find myself drawn to highlighting three aspects of of the book for you. Um, First of all, a warning. Uh, Secondly, an inspiration. And thirdly, the answer to it all. So a warning, an inspiration, and the answer to it all. First of all, the warning. And uh, chapter 52, uh, I think, is a a pretty stark uh, sort of a picture that's painted there. That's the culmination of of where this story's been headed, uh, these last 51 chapters. Uh, We've known since very early in the book of Jeremiah that all's not well in Israel, that God's judgment is, is likely to fall, and by the time we get to chapter 52, we see that that has, in fact, happened. I'm going to assume that you still don't probably understand what's happening historically, even though we've finished a series. It's very hard, I think, uh, the way the book of Jeremiah is written, to get our heads around who's who and what's happened. So probably just to have one last stab at it. If you flick back to chapter 1, probably the clearest summary of the reigns of the kings who are mentioned throughout the book happens there in chapter 1. So um, I do want us to try and, and see this because it, uh, it helps us understand chapter 52. So if you remember, there are three, if you look at those first three verses, we get a summary there of the times in which Jeremiah 
is, is serving God, is acting as a prophet to the people. Three names are mentioned, but actually five kings fall within that period. So first of all, we have Josiah, and he's well known for being uh, probably the best king that Judah ever had. The one thing we must say about Josiah's reign, however good it was in its own time, its legacy didn't seem to be particularly strong because from the the good reign of Josiah, we very quickly deteriorate. So after Josiah died, people made his son Jehoahaz king in his place, and he lasted for three months, so he's not even mentioned at that point in the biblical text. The Egyptians come, uh, they replace him with his older brother Eliakim, and what they do is they change his name, so he becomes Jehoiakim, so he's the second king mentioned there. His, his reign lasts for 11 years, and it was during his reign that the Egyptian superpower is replaced by the Babylonian superpower, and Jehoiakim uh, chooses to rebel against Babylon, and they then, uh, Nebuchadnezzar marches on the city, uh, and Jehoiakim dies while the Babylonian army is at the gates of Jerusalem. So that's Jehoiakim. Josiah, we've thought about. Jehoiakim, we've thought about. And then we're told in verse 3 of chapter 1 that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah. There's actually another king in there who, again, lasted for three months. Um, Before we get to Zedekiah, Jehoiakim was succeeded by his son Jehoiachin. Um, Just to add to any sense of confusion that you might have, three months after after he comes to the throne, the first wave of Babylonian exile happens, and Jehoiachin ends up in exile in Babylon, where he stays. So he's there in exile while Jehoiakim, or, or sorry, Zedekiah, is on the throne. So do we get it now? We're down to these two men by the time we're in chapter 52. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin is in Babylon. Zedekiah is there in Jerusalem. Zedekiah is the one who in chapter 52 suffers terribly at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in the passage uh, which David read for us a moment ago. And it's a, uh, I'm not going to go over it. It, it speaks for itself. Um, in the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign, the city falls. He's captured. He's blinded. He's taken to Babylon. The temple's looted. The city's burned. And thousands more go into exile. I wondered you understand this event and where it fits in the whole of the story of the Bible. This is the low point of the nation of Israel. This is kind of as bad as it gets. I think for any nation, if you read of an event like this, you'd know that something bad was going on. But, but for Judah, for the people of God, the city that's been burned here is Jerusalem, the city of God. The temple that's been looted was Solomon's temple, which had been filled when it was built 
gloriously with the presence of God, dramatically three and a half centuries before. Actually, I thought a useful exercise for a moment would be to contrast that moment with this one, just to see how how stark uh, the, the demise of Israel and Judah has been. Whenever Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed a glorious prayer. You might want to flick to it. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8. It's a really brilliant moment in the biblical narrative of God's people, Israel. So that's 1 Kings chapter 8. It's on page 344. The prayer of dedication, sorry, begins on page 345. Solomon does a brilliant thing in this prayer. He imagines all the people who are going to come to this beautiful temple. And he, he, he chooses to, to imagine particular types of people. So he says, for example, when a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath before your altar in his temple, then hear him from heaven and act. God, if a guy shows up here, Who's, who's in trouble with his neighbor, who needs to make some sort of an oath, then hear him. When somebody shows up, hear him as he prays. Another example, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because of your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and confess, then hear them from heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel. Lord, if your people show up here for asking for your forgiveness, will you hear them? Can we make your temple a place where, where people find restoration and forgiveness? But he goes on, and one of the people who he imagines showing up at the temple in the future is the foreigner. And so Solomon's prayer goes like this. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel but has come from a distant land because of your name, when he comes and he prays before this temple, then hear from heaven and do whatever the foreigner asks you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. It's a quite beautiful picture. It's a picture of people far, far from Jerusalem who have heard of the beauty of God and they've made a journey to come to to Israel, to come to Jerusalem, to come to this temple so that they can find this this wonderful God whom they've heard about. And Solomon says, Lord, when that happens, hear their prayers, answer them, show them your beauty and show them who you are. And of course that happens. If you flick over the, the page in Kings, you'll see that one of the very next stories is of the Queen of Sheba, She journeys from way south in Africa. She comes to to see the glory of Solomon, Solomon's temple, and Solomon's God. So what you have here around the temple and its dedication is the high point of God's people, Israel. For one moment in time at least, they're doing what they were made to do. They're standing for the world as a, as a light, as a, as a magnet drawing people to the living God. The truth is they never managed to live that well again. It was just a, a brief glimpse 
of what they could have been under God. And as I say, that moment there, the, the, the temple dedication, Solomon's great prayer, stands in, in a massive contrast to what happens here in chapter 52. Because what happens in chapter 52 is that the foreigner that Solomon prayed about has shown up. But he hasn't come because he's seen the glory of God lived out by his people. The foreigner has shown up instead at God's invitation to come and judge God's people. He's turned up in entirely the opposite circumstances. He's come at God's invitation to punish God's people and to end the whole Jerusalem temple project. When we started this series, we recognized, I don't know if you remember this, we talked about how we were going to be looking at a book that was about a, a people going into exile, and we, we recognized a dynamic that's at work in the church in the West, and, and certainly in Northern Ireland, where we're being being pushed from a, a place that we used to have in our culture right onto the fringes. And we compared it a little bit to being dragged into exile. Christians haven't literally been removed from the land, but we've been unceremoniously dumped from the place where we once were right to the fringes of our culture. And as we've been reading this uh, book of Jeremiah... It seems to me that it should be a warning to us and a wake-up call. We need to heed God's warning in his word. We don't want to be like the people of Jerusalem. Do you remember how they thought that they'd always be safe? I don't know if you remember this. It's particularly in chapter 7 that this theology comes to the fore. They said to themselves, uh, there was this phrase that they had in Jerusalem. They talked about the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They had this view, we're God's people in God's land, gathering around God's temple. He'll never let anything happen to us. We might be unfaithful. We might not be living for his glory in the way that he's called us to. But there's the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Folks, I think I recognize that dynamic sometimes in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland that we're a part of, some of the other historical denominations. I sometimes hear us saying things to ourselves like, we have been around for 400 years or more. God's going to look after us and our buildings and our traditions. He'd never let anything happen to us. And all the while the church is collapsing like a deck of cards. And there are few people willing to contemplate that we may be living in times where we're knowing God's judgment. 
Folks, it seems to me that as we read the book of Jeremiah, we have to be open to hear this as a warning. As a warning. First of all, in Jeremiah, a warning. Second, in in Jeremiah, an inspiration. And the inspiration uh, in this book that, that has struck me as I've read it and tried to teach it is Jeremiah himself. It's part of the richness of the book of Jeremiah that we get a really strong sense of him as a person. And that's not common in the prophets. You could read a lot of the prophetic accounts and not know much about the, the guy himself. But, but Jeremiah, we, we get to see a lot of who he is. More than any of the other prophets, there's a real sense of knowing the messenger as well as his message. Eugene Peterson draws attention to the real integrity that there is in Jeremiah between him and his message, the consistency of the man and his message. He says, Jeremiah's life and his book are a single piece. He wrote what he lived and he lived what he wrote. There's no dissonance between his life and his book. Jeremiah, living or writing, was the same Jeremiah. We've thought this evening about the troubled times in which Jeremiah lived. Uh, I, I can hardly imagine more turbulent times. The city had already been under siege, had already been attacked long before we get to chapter 52. Um, sometimes we give ourselves uh, credit for living in uniquely difficult times. I'm not sure that that's valid. I think the times uh, Jeremiah is living in here are, are as difficult as any. I could possibly imagine. So Jeremiah lives in a time where everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. And yet here we find him in the middle of it, sticking it out, praying and preaching, suffering and striving, writing and believing. He's lived through crushing hostility. You know, the personal hostility that he experiences is is, is staggering. Every... Every ounce of his strength uh, will have been tested. Every thought of his mind he'll have questioned. Every feeling in his heart uh, will have been ridiculed by people around him. So, So how did he manage to live through all of that? How would we believe whenever we're living through circumstances uh, like those Jeremiah lived through? What are we going to do when circumstances in our culture aren't any more conducive to Christian living? Are we going to abandon God because he doesn't give us a comfortable life that we thought we'd signed up to? Or are we going to do what Jeremiah does and allow the catastrophe itself to, to work in us, to drive us deeper into our trust in God. Jeremiah did the the latter. Instead of abandoning God, he walked with God through his trials and came the stronger for it. Maybe you'd allow me to do a little bit of match of the day here and choose one of my highlights. It's a story that I didn't know at all in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah stands for me as a towering symbol of a person of God who's able to go against the flow. 
Is there anything more important for us today than to learn to go against the flow? To defy the culture? To live by, by deeper and richer values? Well, Jeremiah is that kind of a man. He preached a message that nobody wanted to listen to. I'm straining to remember any time in the book of Jeremiah where anybody said, yeah, Jeremiah, that's a good idea. Good sermon. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Quite, quite the opposite. There are lots of great stories and images, but as I say, I want to choose one, one highlight for me, and it's chapter 35 about the Rechabites. I don't know if you were here the night we looked at that. Jeremiah does a, a, one of his dramatic acts. God invites him to, to uh, put on a dramatic act for the people to see. So he gets a bunch of traveling metal workers called the Rechabites. They're a teetotal bunch because they made a promise to their ancestor two and a half centuries early, earlier that they wouldn't let wine pass their lips. And God says to Jeremiah, get these guys into the temple, right where everybody can see them. Lay a table before them and put the best wine you can get your hands on right in front of them and tell them, right, fellas, drink up. It's kind of a weird uh, thing for, for God to ask Jeremiah to enact. So Jeremiah does that. He sets the stage. He invites the guys to drink. And they say, no, we won't drink the wine. We've made a commitment to our ancestor, Jonadab, son of Rechab, not to drink wine, and we're going to stick to it. Obeying is more important for us than fitting in with the culture. And that's basically the point of it. Jeremiah shows the Rechabites to the people, and he says, look, they obey a promise they made to their, their forefather, but you have a father much greater than theirs, and you, you never obey him. And he makes the point that obedience is possible. The, the story with the Rechabites was there for all the people to, to experience it and to, to get the message. But it's a message, I think, that sums up Jeremiah very well. This, this message that... It doesn't matter what's going on in the culture. Obedience is possible. We don't need to live at the level of the crowd. Life can rise above the lowest common denominator. Folks, I don't know if we believe that. I don't know if we've taken that part of God's word seriously. I think, I think there's something that goes on in us where we actually, we actually believe that we're limited in how we can obey because of the times in which we live. God's used Jeremiah here to be an inspiration to me, to remind me what I easily forget, that holiness, a glorious and godly and a beautiful way of life is possible. I don't need to be making excuses for myself all the time. Whenever we're together, we don't need to be condoning the mediocrity we see in each other. We can be spurring each other on to good deeds, to good lives that glorify God and that show his beauty to the world. Jeremiah stands for me as someone who inspires me to want to stand for God against the tide. Judah, 
presents us with a warning. Jeremiah presents us with an inspiration. Thirdly and finally, these tragic events in this book of Jeremiah leave us wanting something more. They leave us waiting for a better time. We're left waiting for God's answer to it all. And actually, the very last verses of our text and the very last verses of the whole book give us reasons to be hopeful. I wonder, did you notice them? Or did you find them just a a weird uh, little ending after all that stuff about the fall of Jerusalem? This update that we get on Jehoiachin, you remember he's been in exile for for a number of years now, for 11 years I think it is, and we get this wee update on how he's doing. And it's more than a where is he now kind of thing of a, a guy who used to be on the throne. It's got a much richer and deeper purpose than that. These few verses remind us that even while Judah is in captivity uh, and Jerusalem lies in ruins, a king from the line of David still lives. So the first readers of the book of Jeremiah would have taken a huge amount of hope from these four short verses at the end of the book. In this book, which is is mostly about the ways in which God's people have failed and the ways in which he's had to mete out his judgment on them, all hope is not gone. Because Jehoiachin, a descendant of David, continues the line. And where is this line going to go? Turn with me to Matthew's genealogy, page 966, chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel. The family tree of Jesus Christ. Page 966, I think it is. Yeah, 65, sorry. Look at verse 11. This is just a a long list of names, but it, it makes up the family tree of Jesus. And we're told in verse 11 about Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Follow the wee footnote there. Did you see the footnote, Jeconiah, the name has an A beside it? And down at the bottom we read, that is Jehoiachin. And also he's mentioned again in verse 12. Jehoiachin is another word for this Jeconiah, this guy from Jeremiah 52. There it is. He's mentioned now in the family tree of Jesus. We're told that this line continues after the exile, that Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel, that Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and so on until we come to Jacob, the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Judas, captive, Jerusalem's in ruins, the temple's been looted, but all hope is not gone. How could it be? How could the God who promised 
who promised his people that he would always be with them, that there would always be a descendant of David on the throne. How could he fail them? No matter how far they had gone from him, no matter how severe his judgment had to be, God didn't fail his people. By the time we're finished reading the book of Jeremiah, we can't help but be anticipating something better. 52 chapters of this stuff, and we're just thinking, oh, give us some light at the end of this tunnel. Show show us someone who can come and make sense of all of this, someone who can sort this out. Take everything that's wrong and make it right. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. He fulfills all the desires that are stirred in us by the book of Jeremiah. We have watched here a divided kingdom. We've watched, first of all, Israel and then Judah fail. They've proved that they're unfit for the purpose that God's made them for. What was their purpose? God called them to be a blessing to the nations. Their call was amplified whenever God came and spoke to Moses and he made his covenant with him and he said that the the people were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a holy nation. And Israel's other greater prophet, Isaiah, would talk about God's people as the light of the world. At every point, Israel failed in their calling. And at every point where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. God's people were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. They ended up being racist bigots for the most part. If the story of the Good Samaritans anything to go by. And you read of Jesus in the Gospels and his arms are open to the people of any ethnic group even the hated Samaritans. He is a blessing to the nations. God's people were to be a holy nation. And although the religious leaders of Jesus' day couldn't see it, he was the truly holy one. He's the one who showed us what holiness in human flesh would look like. They didn't understand his holiness because they thought holiness was about keeping yourself from sinful people so that they don't contaminate you. If a holy person goes to a sinful person, the sinful person contaminates the holy person. Jesus said no. When the truly holy one goes among sinful people, he contaminates them with his holiness. He starts to reach them. He starts to change them into the new people that God always intended them to be. He was the truly holy one that Israel never quite managed to be. Israel were supposed to be priests. They were supposed to bring people to God and bring God to the people. But, but you know, the, the most fundamental work that the priests of Israel did was that they brought sacrifices, animal sacrifices, to atone for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't just do that. 
Jesus brought a once-for-all sacrifice. He put an end to the whole thing because he became the Lamb of God who gave himself. He, He wasn't just the priest. He was the sacrifice too. He was the whole thing. He fulfilled it all. After Jesus, we don't need any other priest or any other sacrifice. Israel were called to be the light of the world. And when Jesus comes, and we know this from our studies in John's Gospel, he took that Israel label and applied it to himself. He said, I am the light of the world. Folks, all those, all those frustrations, all that longing for a better time that we, we naturally have when we read the book of Jeremiah, all of it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He's everything that Israel were ever supposed to be and so much more. Where does that leave us this evening? We've seen the warning in the book of Jeremiah. We don't want to be like the people in Judah. We've seen some inspiration in Jeremiah who's shown us that it is possible to live in God's strength and to live God's ways. But above all, we're called now to be the new Israel, the new people that God has gathered around his son Jesus. We have been given our chance to live out the calling that Judah failed to live out. Because what does Jesus Christ say to us? Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, what did he say to his disciples in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount? He said, you're the light of the world. All this stuff about Israel being a blessing to the nations, being the priesthood, the holy nation, the light of the world, you're it. Only this time, I've been among you and I've shown you what it's to look like. Only this time, after my death and my resurrection, I've left my spirit to empower you and to work through you. You are the light of the world. Now go and be it. Let's pray. Father God, your word as so often speaks powerfully to us this evening. We're reminded of your call on your people, Judah, and of the ways in which they failed, Lord, and we recognize much of ourselves in that. Lord, as we've thought briefly about Jeremiah, the the person, and how he made himself available to obey you, Lord, we pray you'd encourage us and inspire us there. Lord, would you stop us from constantly making excuses for why we don't obey you? 
Would you make us into people and into a community that believes that we can obey you with your help and in the power of your Holy Spirit? Lord, would you make that a passion for us that we can be your people and walk in your ways and show your glory to the world? But Lord, above all, as we've been in your word tonight, we thank you for the longing that it's created in us for Jesus, for more of his presence, more of his power, more of his spirit at work in us. Lord, we'll continue to fail in our calling if we don't recognize ourselves as people whose identity is in Christ. Lord, we have new life because Jesus has won it for us in his death on the cross. We have a purpose because he's commissioned us and he's told us that we're to be a light to the world, that we're to make disciples of all nations. Father God, would you give us the spirit of Jesus now? Help us to to go from this place this evening ready to serve him in his strength, and for your glory. Amen.